This is the Say the Damn Score podcast with your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome, everybody, to the Say the Damn Score podcast here on SayTheDamnScore.com or on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to be listening to this show. We have a good one for you today, so I want to remind you, before we get to the end, since not everyone makes it to the end, we understand that, too. Make sure to rank this on iTunes, give it a nice comment, and share it on Twitter and Facebook. If you want to contact me, you can tweet me at Radio underscore Logan, or you can look up Say the Damn Score on Facebook. But right now, we are joined by our guest today, and it's a good one. It is the Executive Vice President and Executive Producer of Westwood One Sports, Howard Deneroff, the guy that probably most of you listening someday want to work for. So, Howard, how are you? I'm great, thank you. Glad to be with you. And I sure appreciate it, you taking the time for this. One of the first things I ask everyone, just kind of as a nice little icebreaker, is what was your break into the business? Everybody has one. What was yours? Um, well, actually, so I started, Westwood One was formerly CBS Radio Sports um, back in the late 80s until 98. And so when I was graduating college at Syracuse in 1989, about 10 days away from graduating, looking for jobs, uh, along with everybody else in broadcasting, um, my school posted every week would post job listings. And it could be, you know, from former alums that would send in openings. So it could have been anything from an overnight DJ in Mason City, Iowa, to a cameraman in Fort Pierce, Florida. Could have been any one of those things, or, you know, executives and et cetera. And they posted a job um, a Friday at like 4 o'clock uh, for a, an assistant producer. Uh, who could start at CBS Radio Sports as soon as possible, who knew baseball, who knew football, who knew production skills, and uh, was uh, proficient in Spanish because they had just started a Spanish-language network. And so they called in the job at 4 o'clock. I happened to be in the office at 4 o'clock checking out for the week what had come in, heard about it, called them right back from the payphone down the hall when there used to be payphones before the days of cell phones. And... uh, you know, said, hey, I'm interested, I'm qualified, and uh, went down to interview uh, on Tuesday, three days later, four days later, whatever it was, and had the job by Wednesday. Um, and graduated four days later, started uh, two days after that, and have been at the same desk in the same company, moved up the ladder a little bit for 27 years this past May. That's unique for people to advance as far as you have in the business and stay at the same company how were you able to do that? Was there ever temptation to move on, or were you just always so happy at CBS slash Westwood One that that's the way it turned out? You know, I'd like to say that it's because I'm good at what I do, and, and, and I, you know, certainly that's important, but that's only a small part of it. My job is tied to uh, having the rights to broadcast sporting events. I produce games. I produce, I've produced Monday Night Football, or a portion of it, since 1989. I've produced the NCAA tournament, you know, in some capacity since then. I've done the World Series, the Stanley Cup, all these different events, the Olympics, because we've had the rights to all of these major events for all these years. Now, the last 10 years, I'm a big part of the reason why we retain the rights, because I'm the one negotiating a lot of these deals uh, with, with other people, but a big part of trying to keep those rights. But for the first 18 years or 17 years of my career there, I had no say in it. 
And so, you know, as long as we kept the rights, they needed producers, they needed people to do the job. I was doing a good job, so they kept me. You know, if we had lost the rights to the NFL in 1993, I'd have been out of work no matter how good I was. Or, you know, it wouldn't have mattered if I was good or bad. So that's, that's part of it. Uh, the other part of it is I love what I do. I don't feel like I've ever worked a day in my life. I mean, yes, it's hard work. It's really long hours. It's nights. It's weekends. It's holidays. Um, but it's a labor of love. I mean, I get paid to go to major sporting events. I get paid to, you know, choose announcers and, and hire crews and know how many touchdown passes Brett Favre had or whatever it may be. Um, and so that's what I wanted to do growing up. I never wanted to do anything else from the time I was six. And I've been able to do it, so I've never I, – I put it like this. I've made one resume since 1989. I've never felt the desire to go anywhere else. The only time I did a resume was when I thought we were in jeopardy of losing the rights about 12 years ago, 13 years ago. So I got one together just in case we did. We lost the rights to the NFL. But I've never felt the need otherwise because I love what I do. So I thought it was really interesting that you mentioned that part of the reason you got that first job – was because you were proficient in Spanish. How did you become proficient See, in Spanish? <laughs> um, it was I can answer it in Spanish if you like, but I don't know if your listeners Please will understand don't. <laughs> it. Uh, <laughs> it. Or you understand it, right. It, it, it was my best subject in high school, um, and I just I took it all the way through college. And uh, I, have, I had one grandmother that lived in Cuba for 14 years uh, that spoke it a little bit around the house, not much. You know, like how when parents, when you have young kids, they speak, they spell things so the kids don't understand them. Well, my grandmother, you would speak in Spanish to her sister, so I wouldn't understand. So I picked up very little, not a lot, but enough. Um, and I grew up in New York City, and Spanish, uh, even 20 years ago, 25 years ago, when I actually 30 years ago, I'm dating myself. 30 years ago, when I was in high school, was important. I did use it um, a lot, and uh, and so I just kind of did it from there. Now, I, to be fair, to be honest, I couldn't go on the air and and do a broadcast and sound like a professional Spanish speaker, but I understand it enough to be able to produce the broadcast. Uh, and I can talk to the announcers in their ears in Spanish, and I could interview a player in Spanish who only speaks Spanish enough to get his answers. I would, again, I wouldn't put my voice on the air. So, so it was enough, proficient enough to do the job, but not fluent. Were there ever difficulties having quick communications with a broadcaster? Because I know when you're speaking different languages, kind of the official one you learn in school is often hard to understand for people who are actually fluent in it, who have to listen to different dialects or grew up in a certain area yeah. of, you know what? of the world. The answer is no, because the announcers who I hired and, and worked with in Spanish all were proficient in English. So even if I spoke broken Spanish they understood what I needed to say, what they needed to know, and were able to translate it. I can tell you one actually humorous story uh, when I've got my languages mixed, mixed up. Um, Super Bowl 38, Panthers and Patriots in Houston, fourth quarter. We're doing the broadcast in Spanish and in English. We're in side-by-side booths. I have a producer doing the majority of the producing in English. I have a producer doing the majority of the broadcast in Spanish. And I'm overseeing both. And I have one ear listening to Spanish, and one ear in my headphones listening to English. So I could hear both, what's going on at all times. And I have a button that I could speak to the English broadcast and one that I could speak to the Spanish broadcast in front of me, among other buttons, just the producer, just the talent, whatever. 
So in the fourth quarter, Jake DeLome throws an 85-yard touchdown pass to Moussa Muhammad, which at the time set the record, and still is a record, for the longest touchdown pass in Super Bowl history. Okay? The second it happens, I know it's happening. I produced Super Bowl 31 when Brett Favre set the record of 81 yards. So I knew it immediately, and my other producers didn't. So immediately, as soon as it's happening, I'm in the ears of the, the, um, the English announcers, which were Marv Albert and Boomer Sice, and I'm saying, longest touchdown pass in Super Bowl history. I pause, and then I go to the Spanish button, and I go, La Pase Mas Larga en toda la historia del Super Bowl. And then I go back to the English, and I say, breaking the record held by Brett Favre to Antonio Freeman. Rotando el record de Brett Favre Antonio Freeman in Super Bowl 31. Right? So I'm going back and forth. But I accidentally hit the English button and started speaking Spanish in Marvin Boomer's ear at one point. And they just stopped talking and turned around and looked at me like, what the hell is going on? And had I spoken English, which I did, to the Spanish guys, conversely, because I hit the wrong button there, too, it doesn't matter. They understood it and didn't think twice. But it was only when I was telling the uh, Marvin Boomer in Spanish. So I realized that was probably not a good idea to do both moving forward after that. Do you recommend for a young broadcaster, I suppose I most of my questions are shaped in the view of a play-by-play person, but if somebody wanted to be behind the board as a producer, would you recommend learning Spanish at, at a young age or in college, or is that not a particularly replicable path? Here's what I would say to you. And it, it could be Spanish, it could be German, it could be any language. It could be you could learn how to do a, do, be a cameraman. Um, the more you know, the better chance you have to get your foot in the door for any job in any, in any field. Um, you know, I, I would say, you know, think about this. If, if you're a football player and you play special teams, you've got a better chance of sticking on the team than if you just play, you know, defensive back. Um, you know, depending on what there is. So the more you can do, the more valuable you are at all times. Now, I can't say that if you speak Spanish, it's going to lead to a lucrative career. Simply, you know, it, it, it opened the door for me. It turned out that the Spanish language network that they started in 1989 wasn't financially profitable, and they killed it in 1994. We brought it back in 1999. Same problem in 2003, I think, or 2004. It died again. And so while there are plenty of Spanish language opportunities out there, specifically for baseball, and the NFL has a couple of Spanish broadcasts. Um, it's look, it's a great skill to have just in life. I, I, mean, I use it almost every day just in traveling. It doesn't have to be on a broadcast. So I, I don't know, but it certainly can't hurt. It certainly can't hurt. I mean, I like there's, you know, there's there's opportunities out there, and the more qualified you are for other opportunities, I, why not? You know, I, if I could speak Mandarin, I'd like to learn Mandarin. It doesn't mean it's going to get me a job. It just makes me more versatile in in any walk of life. So you mentioned that you knew you wanted to be involved in sports broadcasting since you were six. Was there a moment yep. when six-year-old Howard Deneroff decided that that's what he wanted to do, and do you remember that? I do. I actually do. Um, no joke. Um, I, I grew up in New York City. I grew up in Queens, about a mile and a half from the old Shea Stadium. So I was a Met fan growing up. And I remember watching Met games and wanting to – imitate the broadcasters. And I remember there was an instance when uh, a player on the Mets had, and, and I don't remember if he had a single double-triple in the game or he had a single double-home run, but he was one hit away from the cycle. And they said on the air, the announcer said, if he hits for the cycle, 
he will be just the second Met to ever do so. Now, the Mets had started in 1962. This is approximately 1974. Actually, it was 74. And so they only had 12 years of history, but still, the second Met to do so. And I'm waiting for the announcer to tell me who the other Met was. And he never did. And I remember thinking to myself, why would he not tell me the other guy who did it? Why would he say, like, it, it doesn't make sense. So I was trying to find out who it was. And this is before the Internet, clearly. This is before news, and I'm trying to find out. I'm asking around. I'm asking people who's got it. I'm looking in anywhere I can. I go to the library. I'm looking at the sporting news, old books, and you know to find out who it was. And from that moment on, I I was like, I, I want to be in this business, but I'm going to tell you the whole story. <laughs> and and in New York at the time, the number one announcer was Marv Albert. He did everything. He did the six o'clock and the eleven o'clock news on on NBC. He did the Knicks, he did the Rangers, he did the Game of the Week on baseball on NBC, he did NFL, and to me, he was sporting, you know, he was broadcasting. And so to me, I was going to be the next Marv Albert. didn't work out quite that way, and that's okay, because when I was in college, I realized my calling was truly to be a producer, and I've never looked back. That being said, um, I, I, I knew I would turn down the sound, and I would try and do the broadcast, or I would listen very intently and see how the broadcast could be better um, from, from that moment on. And, and I, there was plenty of stories from my mom and my friends uh, driving them crazy. They couldn't watch or listen to a broadcast with me because I, all I would do was try to make it better. So what made you decide to move from being on air to being behind the board as a producer? Very simple. Um, I, I went to Syracuse University, uh, which at the time in the mid to late 80s was very popular not as popular as it is now but very popular um when i was let me back step a minute in 1984 um when i was in high school and trying to figure out where i wanted to go sports illustrated ran an article on syracuse university and called it sportscaster u again this is before the internet this is before you could do virtual tours i didn't know much about syracuse university they did an article about how that was the school that produced a litany of great sportscasters, including Marv Albert, Bob Costas, Len Berman at the time was big in New York, Marty Glickman, um, and a new one coming out named Greg Papa. He was the new one, the next in the line, if you will. Now, Greg, for those who may not know who are listening, is the voice of, has been the voice of the Raiders for nearly 20 years. Maybe it's more than 20, and I've lost track, but certainly for a long time. He does a ton of stuff out in San Francisco. He does the Olympic basketball for NBC. Um, he does a lot of stuff out there, and he's very successful. So when I read that, along with a lot of other 16-year-old males and females, we all wanted to go there. And so I went there, and it was very competitive. So when I started at the school radio station and got on the air, um, after a year, I was the assistant sports director. And to be fair, you're in college, so you're rotating you know, chances to do things, whether you're good, whether you're not, whether you're a senior or a junior, everyone's getting a chance. You know, it's whose place is it to tell people you're not good or you can't get on the air? Anyway, so one of my jobs at the time as the assistant sports director was to uh, audition people to try out for the radio station. Now, keep in mind that Mike Tarico was already at the radio station ahead of me. Sean McDonough had just graduated. Um, and so now I'm listening to tapes of people who want to get on the air. One of the first people of the 70 or so tapes that we got that I chose out to be on the air was Ian Eagle. I knew immediately he had what I thought he was going to be great. So I put Ian Eagle on the air. 
One of the other guys I chose was a guy by the name of Steve Goldstein, who's the voice of the Florida Panthers now. Um, one of the other guys I chose, his name is Craig Carton, who hosts the morning show on WFAN with Boomer Esiason, the number one morning show in the country. Um, and I'm not telling you all this to say, oh, my God, look, look you know, he picked all these great guys, because I don't know that the 57 guys I didn't choose weren't better. What I can tell you is, though, that the radio station I worked at was so good in college, I knew immediately I was the 11th best guy out of 10 on the air. I knew it. As much as I wanted to do this and as much as I listened and studied the craft, I couldn't get from my head to my mouth properly. And I'd get to a commercial break, and I'd beat myself up and say, why did you say that that way? You should have said it this way. You know better. You know, and I beat myself up during the commercial break instead of, you know, like a quarterback throws an interception, they tell you to forget it and move on to the next pass. I couldn't forget the interception. I would dwell on it. It would drive me crazy. Yet I knew how it should sound. So I just, and I, I decided that I'd be better served helping others get better that could get from their head to their mouth. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but I knew I was not as good as everybody in my own school station. So I figured if I'm 11th best here, when you factor in everybody else on the air, I may not get work, or I may end up in a really small town doing, you know, D-League something. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do major events, so I decided to go behind the scenes and lug the equipment and produce because nobody wanted to do that at the time. And um, from the first game I did, from the first show and the first game I produced, I never wanted to do anything else again. I knew immediately it was for me and never looked back. So that's a long story to your question, but there was a seminal moment, yes. Well, let's follow up on that a little bit with talents like Mike Tirico and Ian Eagle. You talked about how you listened to them in college and you immediately knew this guy's going to be great. What stood out in their demo and in the way they did things in college that led you to believe that? You know, I, I can't tell you that because I, I, I wish there were, if there was a formula to that, I could tell you that immediately. All I can say to you is this. Think about music. When you hear, I don't know what your favorite music is, it doesn't matter. It could be country music, it could be R&B, it could be hip-hop, it's irrelevant. Whoever your listeners like. When you hear a song for the first time, it either strikes you as you love it, you hate it, or it's like, oh, it's okay, right? You, sometimes you're just like, wow, I love this song. And it may be because of the tempo, it may be because of the, of the words, it may be because of the instruments, it may be a lot of different reasons, right? But the next song you love may be for different reasons. They may not be similar. And you may have a favorite artist and not like everything they sing um, and may like some of their stuff that aren't big hits versus some of their stuff that is. I can't explain it. I just can tell you the second I hear a tape, I know it. And I knew it back then, and I still know it. And I, I, it's just I don't know if, if like, maybe it's a gift. Maybe it's just, I don't know, maybe it's just good fortune. I didn't know that Ian Eagle was going to become one of the greatest broadcasters of all time. I can't admit to that. I didn't. Mike Tirico, again, was there before me. I did grow up with Mike in Queens. We went to summer camp together, so I knew him. And actually, when I went as a, as a high school senior to go look at the school, he showed me around a little bit and told me how great it was. And so that was a big part of me going there because he was already working at the school radio station, and I felt that that would be a great in. But so I, I was no, you know, it wasn't like I put him on the air the first time. I did put Ian on the first time. I did put Craig on. Um, but I just can't, I can't explain it. It was just something that sounded right. Um, just like a song hits you as this is going to be 
a big hit or something. I hope that makes sense. But that's the way it is to me. And this is the way when I listen for tapes for Westwood One now, and I get a lot of them. I get a lot of them. I probably listen to 20 a month. I probably get 40 a month, so I'm behind. But um, when I listen, I know immediately, even if it's a single-A baseball game in the Independent League, I can tell immediately. Give us a Mike Tirico summer camp story with you guys. <laughs> um, okay, Mike Tirico summer camp. Uh, I'll give you two quick ones. So three-on-three basketball we would play, and you know, three guys would sit out. It would be like nine guys in a group, ten guys in a group. So three-on-three would play, and then another team of three would sit and wait to play the winner. And so Mike and I, if we were on a team together, we would sit off to the sideline and we'd call the action of the three-on-three going on in front of us. And, you know, Mike would do the play-by-play, and I'd jump in with the caller occasionally. But Mike would do something like, um, you know, uh, you know, here's Berman with the pass to Levenberg. Levenberg puts it up. Oh, he's fouled, but there's no call. And he was hacked, you know, and but the rebound is, you know, off the back of the rim taken by... You know, Johnson, who brings it back the other way, whatever. And the guys who were playing eventually would yell over to us, will you two shut up over there? We're trying to play a game. (laughs) So that would be number one. And then number two, my story is, my first year in camp with him, is that we were in different uh, groups, bunks, whatever you would call them at the time. And so we were playing softball against each other, and he had a no-hitter in softball until the last inning. And I let off the last inning, and there was no way we were going to be no hit, so I bunted for a base hit, and I think, I, I'm pretty sure he still remembers it and is still pissed off about it. <laughs> <laughs> so while we're having story time here, there's a couple other people I want you to tell stories about. Okay. First of all, we've had John Nicholson on yeah. this podcast before, the director of the Newhouse School. I, looking at the timeline, you, I can't quite tell if you guys overlapped. It would have been very close, but I have a feeling you know him. Give us a John Nicholson I, story. I, I don't really have a story other than, I mean, I used to watch him all the time. When I was in school, again, this is before the cable influx. When I first, So my first two years of college, you know, ESPN existed and cable existed, but it wasn't in the dorms. So the only TV we had was CBS, NBC, um, and ABC, and then PBS. There was no Fox when I was in college. And so, and maybe you had another independent channel or two. So John was the news anchor for, God, I think it was Channel 4 or maybe it was Channel 5, forgive me, I don't remember, it's been a long time, 30 years. Um, and so I used to watch him do the news um, all the time. He was not at the university when I was there. He was in the market um, doing news, and so our paths crossed that he would be covering a game, and I would see him and, you know, I maybe had one or two conversations with him. I've had much more in recent years um, with him being at the school, and now actually I have teenage daughters, one of whom is going up for a summer program in two weeks, and one of which is looking to apply there next year to go to Newhouse. So I'm going to have more conversations with them in the future, I'm imagining. But um, but no, I don't really have a funny story to relay about them, um, to be honest. Have you ever gotten pushback from broadcasters who, for whatever reason, you did not hire because you never did play-by-play past the past the college level as a student? Um, I've only had, I'd say, one announcer really take issue with me not hiring him over the years. Now, keep in mind, I started in 89. I've really only been in charge of talent since, fully in charge of talent since 08. I had input on talent from 03 to 08, but wasn't the final decision maker. Um... So since 08, I've had one announcer really take umbrage with 
my decision um, and really have a problem with it. And not because of what you said, but because of the reasoning I told him I wouldn't hire him. And, um, and I don't think you need to have done it. I mean, look, it certainly helps. I know how hard it is, Logan. Okay, I know how difficult it is because I couldn't do it. Now, had I worked at it a long time and I, you know, toiled in the minors and went and did, you know, low Division One basketball or even Division Two, um, could I have gotten better? Absolutely. The only way you get better in this business or in any job is to do it more, right? Get more reps. How do you get better at free throw shooting? You shoot more free throws. So I would have gotten better. I, I, I was a student of the art. I just thought I was, it was more natural for me to produce. Um, so I don't think you have to be a good broadcaster, just like I don't think you have to be a good player to be a good manager in baseball, right? Or you don't have to be a great player to be a great coach. Um, some of the greatest players of all time were not good coaches. So I, I think if you know it and you understand it and you're, what's the word I want to, you're fair and you explain your reasoning, they may not agree with it. They certainly don't agree with it because they want the job. But I think they will always appreciate the feedback and the honesty. And if they don't, I'm sorry. I only have, you know, ten slots for basketball announcers and six or seven slots for football announcers or whatever it may be. So I can be selective. You know, I've got think about how many Division One schools there are doing basketball, right? What are there, three hundred and twenty? So if there are three hundred and twenty, I think or maybe that's not just Division One, it's all basketball. Three hundred and twenty one broadcasters and I can only hire ten, you know, that means 300 of them are going to be disappointed. So one of, you were just at the one-day ticket to sportscasting success. You did part of a panel discussion in Salisbury, North Carolina. It was part of the STAA event. That's where we were able to connect and kind of set this up. And one of the things you said at that conference that stood out to me, you did a panel discussion with Tom Bowman and Chris Ferris from Learfield and IMG, yep. is that you where the other two maybe necessarily couldn't do this, were able to hire people who were good no matter what level they were at. Explain that a little bit and tell me the lowest level that you have hired someone directly to Westwood One from. It's a great question, um, and I said it because it's true. Um, here, here's what I believe. Talent is talent, and, you know, look, there's only a few Kobe Bryant's, LeBron James, Kevin Garnett's who can go from high school right to the NBA, right? There's not a blueprint. The same blueprint doesn't apply to everybody. Those guys didn't have to have four years in college uh, or even one year in college now, like a lot do, to be the best in the world, right? They had a natural gift. And so I fully believe this is a gift. Bob Costas didn't get better necessarily. He did because he went to four years of college. Bob Costas is naturally gifted. Ian Eagle is naturally gifted. Mike Tirico was naturally gifted. And not, it doesn't have to be just Syracuse guys that I'm naming. I'm just naming those guys because they're top of mind. We talked about a few of them already. Um, anybody who's in this business who does really well was naturally gifted. And so to me, you know, how does a player jump from high school to pro? They may have some rough spots their first year, right? But the coach is there to help guide them. So to me... If I find somebody who's naturally gifted and I think they can do the job, I don't have to take a guy who's been toiling in AAA for 20 years, right? I can take a guy right out of single A, or I could take a guy, you know, from the minors, so to speak, uh, if I think he's good enough. Um, and I'm not always right, 
but you know, because there are plenty of guys who go from high school to the pros, right, or single A to the pros in baseball, and flame out. Um, but in this case, so uh, I'll mention one name specifically: Kevin Kugler, who is our voice of Sunday Night Football, and who has is been on this podcast. And he's been on the podcast. There you go. So he's got to be a big name, right? Exactly. So, well, up until today when I did that and just killed the streak. The, um, so, so Kevin is the voice of the Final Four and the NCAA tournament for us. He's you know, one of our lead voices. He'll be doing Olympic basketball here coming up from Rio. Uh, does the Masters. Uh, does virtually anything we do and is very versatile. Uh, I'm not going to say I discovered him because somebody would have found him if it wasn't for me. Uh, but because we have the rights to the NCA and we produce the broadcast of the College World Series, I've had the good fortune of going to Omaha almost every year since '99. I've only missed it twice. I love going. Uh, it's one of my favorite events to do every year. And in, I, I think it's '03, maybe it's '02, maybe it's '03. I was in Omaha, and Kevin, a young broadcaster working at our affiliate in Omaha, KOZN, came up to me, introduced himself said he was a big fan of, of Westwood One, listened to the broadcast all the time, and would I mind listening to a tape of his. Not that he was expecting me to hire him or offer him a job. He just wanted some critique uh, from somebody who did this for a living outside of his inner circle. So I said, sure, get me a cassette. So now you know how long ago this is. It's before <laughs> MP3s and before downloads and Dropbox and CDs. It's, it's a cassette. So I, I have to ask him, because I honestly don't remember, but it was a cassette of something like Central Iowa versus Shadron State. It, it was two schools. You know, it was a very small schools. It was not Division One football. I don't remember if it was Division One A, if it was Division Two, II, Division Three, whatever. And he was solo. He didn't have a partner. And I listened to the tape. And immediately, I again, I said to you earlier in the show, in the podcast here, I just knew. It's just one of those things. It just hit me like, what is this guy doing Central Iowa games for? This guy is incredibly talented. And he was alone. Now, his engineering skills were terrible because the audio quality was bad. Other than that, so I wasn't going to hire him as an engineer, um, the rest of it was really, really good. He, um, he didn't have a stats guy, yet he was rattling off, that's his seventh catch for 86 yards. That's a 16-yard game. I mean, immediately. Like, how is he doing this? He didn't have a spotter. He made every tackle. Now, he could have given every wrong name for all I know, but it sounded good. Uh, and so I just listened, and I was like, what else are you doing? And he's like, well, I'm doing a little baseball here for um, Creighton. I'm doing a little this. I'm doing a little that. I'm doing a talk show. <laughs> and I said, get me more stuff. And he got me more stuff. I hired him next year to do the College World Series with us as the field reporter. The next year, I realized immediately he was the best guy on the broadcast. The next year he was in the booth. The next year I hired him to do college football, and he's progressed ever since. So, and, and you know, is he flashy? No. Is he loud and obnoxious? No. You don't have to be that to be, you know, good. You shouldn't be that to be good, in my opinion. But uh, he's just very, very solid on everything. And like I said, if I didn't hire him, somebody else would have. He would have moved quicker. Uh, Big Ten's using him now. Fox is using him now. HBO's used him for something. Um, so more and more people are becoming aware of him, and I'm going to try and keep him as long as I can because he's incredibly talented. So he was, I mean, you know, Omaha's not a small city by any stretch. I think it's the 60th market in the country or something like that. Um, but, you know, he was just doing local stuff and nothing on a bigger scale. But I knew immediately he was uh, he was really good.
So what are some other ways that you found people in non-traditional places? Uh, yeah, um, I, whenever I'm in a city, I listen to, you know, I turn on the radio, try and find some local play-by-play. I don't care if it's East Stroudsburg University in Pennsylvania or it's Snow College in Utah. Uh, I'm just listening to hear some people, and sometimes, you know, you get surprised. Um, one of my other announcers does stuff. His name is John Sadak, and uh, up another up-and-coming guy, young guy. I heard him doing um, Delaware women's basketball. And at the time, Delaware women's basketball was very good because they had one of the top players in the country who's now in the WNBA, um, Eladon. And, uh, and so I listened and sounded really, really good, really good. And I was like, why is, again, nothing wrong with Delaware women's basketball. They were a top 20 program, but I felt his talent level was higher than Delaware women's basketball. So uh, I called and and actually knew somebody who actually worked on Delaware women's basketball broadcasts, believe it or not, along with other Delaware stuff, and Wilmington Blue Rocks and things like that, minor league baseball, and got in touch with them and hired him to do women's basketball for us and then moved him up to men's basketball, and now he's doing NFL and doing, uh, you know, he's, uh, our, our, he does our women's Final Four and does the men's NCAA tournament and is going to do more stuff for us moving forward as well. What catches your attention in a demo tape? What are the main things you're looking for besides, of course, saying the damn score? <laughs> well, if I didn't answer that, then you should kick me off the podcast. So you answered it for me. Um, the, the, clearly, that's the most important thing. But honestly, it, it, to me, it's not about the voice. You don't need to sound like James Earl Jones or John Facenda. Now, you don't want to sound like Winnie the Pooh either, necessarily, or Mickey Mouse. That's not good. Um, but it's really the guys I just mentioned. You know, Kevin Kugler is, doesn't have deep pipes, but it's what he says, and so that's really what it comes down to. It's do I know the situation? Do I know where the ball is? It doesn't matter the sport. Do I know the score? Can I understand you? Um, and am I am I engaged? Um, you know, the worst thing is not knowing who has the ball, not knowing the situation, or and, and I personally like excitement. To me, on radio, I can't see anything. Nobody can see anything, obviously. But I need to hear emotion in your voice. Because if you're not excited, why would I ever be excited? I need to be, you know, you need to explain, describe tension. You need to describe excitement. You need to describe disappointment. You need to describe all of these things with your inflection of your voice. And so that's what I'm listening for. Now, I'm also listening during a basketball game. Do you tell me if a guy is a 72% free throw shooter when he goes to the line or if he's a 40% free throw? Do you tell me there's five seconds left on the shot clock? There are certain technical things I'm listening for also. Do I know the down and the distance in the formation in a football game? Do I know which way the fielders are shaded in a baseball game? You know, if there's a right-handed pull hitter up there with, you know, first base open. I need to know all those things. But it's about cadence you don't want to speak too fast and so every sport's a little different end of the day you got to tell me the information and you can't be monotone you've got to be able to improper english you have to be able to uh, engage me and keep me interested with your inflection and your emotion but without being over the top you know you can't scream on a home run in the second inning of game 13 of the season 
you know, but you should scream if it's a home run in the third inning of the game of the championship game. You know, got to keep it in context. If you start screaming the second inning of game 13, where do you go? You know, you can't go much. You, you, you got to build excitement. So describe the rule. I want to say this from my position doing small college and high school football and basketball in rural South Dakota. So let me let me cut you off for one second. Look, if you can do high school football well, okay, you can do any football well because the NFL is easier than Division One major college football, which is easier than lower level Division One, which is easier than Division Two, which is easier than D three, which is easier than high school. High schools, and I said this at the, at the seminar, so you probably heard this, but your listeners didn't. High school football is the toughest thing to do. It's the same game, but you have virtually no information to go off of. You don't know where they're going to want to go to school. You don't know what their major is. You don't have many stats. They're tough to recognize. You barely have a roster. The coaches are reticent to tell you anything because they don't want, you're afraid you're going to give secrets to the opponent. Um, and so if you can do high school football well, I believe you can do anything. I've listened to high school tapes, and I've hired people off of, of high school tapes. I've hired people off of low-level college, as I mentioned with Kugler. Because to me, if you can be good there, well, NFL gives you, I mean, you know all the players by heart. You've seen them for years. You have video. You have audio. You have stats. You have storylines. You can talk to them. It's so much easier. So, I'm sorry, go back to what your question was. That's fine. It was a good tangent. But I was going to say, I'm lucky to have a producer who can hit the button on time and get a couple highlights. What is the <laughs> role of a producer at your level, and how does that? How different is it? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of producers, not because I am one, but because I know what a difference they can make in a broadcast. Um, so, so for the people who don't know what a producer does, and I'm the executive, so I can explain the difference of that in a second, but a game producer or a show producer is basically in charge of what do you talk about, for how long, in what order, make sure all the commercials play, and make sure you the broadcast moves along and goes smoothly. You're really you're the, you're the traffic cop, if for lack of a better term. Um, you know you don't want to spend too much time on one topic on a talk show. You don't want to harp on something on a game broadcast. You want to make sure that if somebody hits for the cycle and you tell me that it's the you know it's only the second person ever to do it, you better tell me who the first person is. Um, it's just to it's to help the announcer with maybe some research or some good lines of questioning for an interview subject. It's to um, uh, just just to make everything to make the announcer's job smoother, simply because the announcer in the heat of the moment may not remember everything. I use the example of Jake DeLome to Moose and Muhammad breaking the record of the Super Bowl. Well, everyone on our crew knew that, but in the moment they may have forgotten it. And so my job is to make sure that on that call they say that so that they remember um, that and that people, you know, because it enhances the broadcast. It lets the listener know the historical significance. Wow, that's not something you see every day. But it can be more than that. It can be something when you're doing an interview that the, the interview subject says something and you remind the announcer in their ear to follow up on that because of what just happened. I'll give you an example if I have a moment. Um, in In the Stanley Cup final in... Uh, the years run together, so I apologize. I think it's 05. Um, Carolina and Detroit. Car- Detroit beats Carolina four games to one to win the Stanley Cup. But we're in the postgame. We're about to go to the postgame, and it's clear that Detroit's going to win the Stanley Cup. And Scotty Bowman is going to win his ninth Stanley Cup as a head coach, which is the most of all time. He's considered the greatest coach of all time. 
Uh, he's the, you know, whatever, the Chuck Knoll, the Bill Walsh of, uh, of hockey, all rolled into one. The Vince Lombardi, all into one. Okay? So we go to interview him in the postgame, and we get him, and the ringside reporter says something along the lines of, Scotty, congratulations, your ninth Stanley Cup. What does it feel like? I would imagine this never gets old, this feeling. And we had talked about right before that what the questions were going to be with Scotty. So we were going to ask him about that. Then we were going to ask him about Dominic Hasek, who was the goaltender for Detroit, stopping 40 saves or whatever it was, standing on his head the whole series and being the difference maker because they had just traded from the year before. And so we talked about line of questioning. All of a sudden, Scotty answers the first question and says, actually, this is getting old. I'm done. I told the team before the game tonight, if we win it tonight, I'm retiring. Let's finish it in style. Uh, I've had enough. I want to spend time with my grandkids. It's been a great career. Blah, 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 blah. You know, and all of a sudden, I'm in my announcer's ear. Did he just retire on the air? Did he just double-check that? Ask him again. Wait, is this, this is it? Why? What went into your decision? And I'm making sure my announcer doesn't ask him about Dominic Hasek and stopping saves because that's irrelevant now. So it could be something like that as well where you help to make sure because, and, and look, my announcer should have known that. I should never have to say that to an announcer. But if you're so worried about what you're going to ask next because you have a list of questions that you don't pay attention to what's being said, you could miss the whole lead story. We broke it because we had them before TV did. We were the only ones. So we, we had to go with it immediately and follow up on it. And all of a sudden the interview was about him and his career and not, and not the other stuff. So we talked to the other players about it. So it can be something as simple as that. It could be making sure you're on time. It could be, you know, adding music to it, uh, doing a piece, a profile piece on a player, and getting sound bites and running highlights and putting music under it. And, uh, there's a lot of elements to it, um, but the job is to enhance the broadcast and make it go more smoothly. And nowadays, more importantly, make sure all the commercials and sponsor reads get get done so it pays all the bills. What's the prep process like for a producer? I would answer this by saying to you, a good producer can never pr- prepare enough. Um, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. And, and so I never have enough time to prepare what I feel is properly. Just like a head coach would always say they'd want more time to be prepared for their opponent, I always want more time. I can never be prepared enough, but I am obsessive, I'm compulsive, I'm I'm OCD, I'm type A, 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 A. Um, so there are the producers that are not the same. But I think the best producers are the ones that are obsessive, compulsive, and type A, et cetera, et cetera. So. so let's get back to fun story time here, as there's a couple things. There's not a whole lot of, inter- there's not a whole lot of information about you online. You've done a good job there. <laughs> That's on purpose. <laughs> but one of the stories that, you mentioned at the seminar is you were doing the production for the Super Bowl. I don't remember what number it was. I probably should have looked that up. There's a lack to prepare, but it was the one in New Orleans okay. where the lights went out. Yes, that that was had to be a little bit of a scary situation. You talked about the how that turns a play-by-play announcer from being a entertainer to a journalist there for a little bit. But just take us through that process and how that went and what was going through your head. Um. Can, should I be clean in this story, or should yeah. I tell you exactly These, This is a podcast. You can say whatever you want. Uh, okay. Um, well, to be fair, um, so 
and, and so this is Super Bowl 47, so, and I've worked on, in some capacity as a producer, every Super Bowl since Super Bowl 24. I've been very fortunate. And, and you know, it started out as being a production assistant. Then it started out, then became the pregame and halftime and postgame producer. And then it became, I mentioned to you, we hit Spanish and English. Then I became the producer. Then I became the coordinator producer. Now I'm the executive producer. So I, I've had a hand in every Super Bowl since Super Bowl 24, which is incredible. But nothing like this. And so... You know, the game's going along. We come out at the start of the second half, and Jacoby Jones runs back the kickoff return for a touchdown. And here's one of those moments as a producer. I made sure my talent knew immediately it's the longest play in Super Bowl history. Not just the longest kickoff return. It's the longest play in Super Bowl history. So we do that. We go to a commercial break. We come out of the commercial break. Um, actually, I'm sorry, there was no commercial break because it was the opening kickoff of the second half. I apologize. So we're just filling, and then comes the the neck, the, the, the kickoff back to San Francisco, and all of a sudden, I don't hear anything in my ears. Everything goes dark in my ears, and I've had that happen before. I pull the the, the plug out of you know, I pull the the headphone jack out of the thing, so I'm looking. And that's my first thought, and then I see everything on my console is black. So I'm like, uh oh. And then my talent, which is Kevin Harlan and, and uh, Boomer Sison, which are right next to me, Kevin next to me starts banging his headphones like he's lost everything. He's putting his head banging and banging and hitting me with his elbow. And, I'm, and I realize that he's not hearing it. And then I see everything in the front row where we are is completely out. So now I'm like, oh, crap. So I now look behind us, which is where all our racks of equipment are. And keep in mind, for the Super Bowl, we have a huge setup, so much huger than anything in radio. And, and normal, normal radio broadcast, and racks of equipment in it. And it's normally lights, green lights, and red lights, and yellow lights, and, and everything. And it's completely dark. And my engineers, normally for a football broadcast on radio, there's one engineer. I have four engineers for the Super Bowl now. And they are scurrying around like mice in a maze. And now I'm like, oh, shit. And so... I still don't realize it's the whole thing. I, I'm, you know, whatever. Because remember, the, when there was the blackout in the stadium, you have to remember, not all the lights went out in the stadium. Only about three-quarters of the lights went out. So it wasn't completely pitch black where all of a sudden you realized, wait, what just happened? And so now I look out in front of the press box, in front of the booth, broadcast booth, and I look down towards the press box, and I look down to the field, and I see that nothing is on. And now I'm like, oh, I won't say the rest. And <laughs> All of this, by the way, this whole process of uh-oh to oh-crap to oh-shit to OF was about 10 seconds. All that in 10 seconds. I mean, it's in, it, it feels like an eternity, but it was 10 seconds. I then realized, okay, we got a problem. But I know what we have to do. I actually, my, I still told you I started in 1989. My first World Series, there was an earthquake. I was brand new. I didn't know what to do. I watched as people did it. Now, technology has changed a lot in the 25 years in between. However, what we did in 1989 during the earthquake when we lost all power is the same thing we did this time, is a regular old standard phone line works. It doesn't, it's not, as long as you don't use a portable phone that's plugged in, if it's just a regular old, old-time phone, it works. That doesn't work on power. It goes through the landline. So we have a phone in an emergency to get us on the air. So all I did was I picked up the phone, I called the studio, and the studio, by the way, the same time I'm doing those 10 seconds of, uh-oh, oh, crap, they're doing the same thing because they went to our backup feed. There's nothing there. They went to our backup backup feed. 
there's nothing there. They went to the third. We have three backups. Nothing's there. They look on TV, see nothing's there. They realize they got a major problem. So their instructions are to hit a commercial break. So I call in. So we have 26 seconds of silence on the air, which is way too long, but it is what it is. It's a lot less than everybody else. He hits a commercial. Two minutes later, we were out of that commercial on the phone reporting live for the next 34 minutes, passing a phone around and getting people on and talking about what the situation was. And at that point, anytime there's something unusual like that, your job is not a, is a, not a sportscaster. Your job is a news reporter. We have to tell people that, okay, the blackout is in the dome. It is isolated. There's not, the whole city is not out. It is not a terrorist act. It is not, you know, once we were getting information, we didn't know. So we don't want people to panic. And keep in mind, there were also people listening on the radio in the stadium who had no idea what was going on. The PA announcer didn't work because uh, there's no power. So, but if you had a little portable radio, which they gave out to all the fans in the stands, okay, as, as a gift in the little seat cushions, they're listening to us. So we're reporting, okay, you know, this is what's going on. This is what's happening. There's nothing, you know, the lights are on outside on Bourbon Street. This is isolated. They're working on it. The backup generator, all the things we could tell them, which wasn't a lot initially, but you become a news reporter. And I learned all that during the 89 earthquake when you're talking about all these other things. So um, it was probably the longest 34 minutes of my career. Um, but I will say this, or 36 minutes, I think it was, 34 minutes we were on the air, 36-minute delay. Um, because of the two minutes of commercials, I, you know, we handled it as about as good. I'm as, pr- I'm a, as proud of those 36 minutes as I am of everything we've ever done, simply because everybody came together and, and you know, reacted and did what we could. Um, TV had, you know, TV is documented how they handled it. A lot of more people saw TV than listen to us, uh, although we had a big audience that day. Um, and the 49ers and the Ravens radios were affected much more than we are because simply, you know, they're, they're not, they didn't have somebody who lived through this once before 25 years ago and know how to handle it. And that's just my good fortune, I guess you would say. <laughs> so that's interesting. One of the things that I've learned over my somewhat short career is to always have some sort of backup equipment. And you always have, do you, at every game you go to, do you have those old POTS line phones? Absolutely. It's the only way to get on the air if you need it. Now you could just use a cell phone. Well, you can, but here's what I will tell you. Go to any major event or go to some parts of town where you may be. I happen to be calling in right now from Kentucky, and even though I'm in Lexington, there are pockets that are Hmm. not working. I was just trying to make a phone call before we spoke, and there were pockets that it was cutting in and out. It happens. And so 70,000 people at a Super Bowl jamming their cell phones during a blackout, (laughs) you're not getting on the air. Um, so, and, and, and by the way, let's remember now, the cell tower could go down too. That's possible also. If, if there's a major outage outside the building, the cell tower may not be, you know, it may not work either. So the only true way to do it is a landline. The other huge event that Westwood won, I mean, they cover a ton of huge events. They cover the Masters, they cover the Final Four but the Olympics coverage from a producer's standpoint, for, to me, seems like just such a daunting undertaking. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of producers, but as the executive producer, give us some Olympic stories. Well, we've done every Olympics continuously since 92 between CBS Radio and then Westwood One. Um, 
it'd be it'd be hard pressed for me to pick one out. Um, other than I can tell you that, um, you know, probably the the, the, the most interesting and, and unique one would be '94 in Norway, when uh, if your listeners may remember, Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding were the big story because six weeks before Tanya Harding's boyfriend clubbed Nancy Kerrigan on the knee so she couldn't perform in the Olympics. And so we actually did a two-hour live play-by-play special broadcast of them skating at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on the East Coast, 8 o'clock Norway time. Um, And virtually every station in America carried that broadcast. So picture 2 o'clock in the afternoon, a major broadcast, preempting two hours for ice skating. And and whether you were on LA in LA at noon or New York or we were on almost everywhere. It was such a big event. In fact, it's still the most watched event ever that was not a Super Bowl sporting event that was not a Super Bowl. And there was a snowstorm on the East Coast that was conducive to it as well. Um, so that was probably the most unique story. Just just getting that all together and and that whole thing to me is more memorable probably than any other Olympics. Certainly, Michael Phelps winning the most medals in 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 '08, and um, you know coming back in '12. There's been a lot of great stories over the years. Uh, I can tell you from a from a technical standpoint, it's the most difficult thing we do because of all the different venues, because of the foreign country involved and everything else. And to be fair, I my coordinating producer, our coordinating producer, Mike Eby, is really the executive producer for the Olympics. I, you know okay some things and I review things with him and but literally he does 95% of the the work for that event and does a great job of it and that's that's I leave that up to him because I trust him to do it and so um and so for our coverage coming up in Rio he's the point he's the point guard he's the center he's the he's the power forward he's all of the above uh and I just a coach but like let's be honest when you have Steph Curry or somebody like that as the as the lead guy you don't have to coach much you know what I mean so uh, but it's 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 a big undertaking. It's an expensive undertaking, but again, labor of love. You're doing, you know, unbelievable events in foreign countries, and and you get to see Americans win gold and other great stories that are not Americans, you know, win gold. And sometimes the disappointments of not winning. It's it's all part of what makes the event great. So just give us a couple other horror stories. What I like to call them, where things just went horribly wrong in your career. Never had one thing go wrong. <laughs> uh, that's where I'm at. Where I'm at. No, uh, you know, I, I I beat myself up over just the littlest things. The littlest things will drive me crazy. Um, and so, and other people will be like, you, you, "That's what you're worried about. That's what bothers you." Uh, I'm a perfectionist, so I, I can tell you that. But I, I mean, look, I I have nightmares about losing broadcast lines and and not getting on the air or losing cue cards. Um, or something along those lines. Um, you know, we use cue cards to cue the announcers to breaks, or to read the, you know, the uh, the, the Geico sponsorship or whatever it may be. And so, my, I actually have nightmares about not being able to find a card for air. Um, and so, to me, the nightmares are always worse than the reality. Uh, but I mean, look, technical problems are always always the toughest. You know, like I said, Super Bowl thirty uh, forty seven was probably the longest thirty six minutes. Uh, we had an announcer lose his voice during Super Bowl 24, Hank Stram. Uh, that, and I was a rookie, um, and so that was interesting to say the least. Um, I've had broadcast lines go down um, at the stadiums, and you have to, you know, it's just we had a power outage in Buffalo for a game once. Um, 
you know, there's there's a lot of those. They're they're all usually technically related, out of your control. But um, but I don't know about horror stories. We we had um, I I've never really had a major issue with any uh, crew members simply because when you're at the network level, you're hiring the best of the best. You know what I mean? And so there hasn't really been, like, nobody's walked out of a broadcast or anything like that. I've had several occasions where announcers haven't been able to make it to the, the, the city in time for a broadcast, and I've had to scramble to find somebody last minute. I've had that happen at least once a year for 20 years, where I've had to hire somebody out of the blue to fill in on a moment's notice. That's never fun, uh, very stressful. So I would say those are probably some of my horror stories. I've had it happen for uh, two, an NFC championship game and an AFC championship game. I've had it happen for an NFL playoff game. I've had it happen for... So what are the reasons that happens? Is it traffic? Is it sickness? What's uh, usually the reason? Death in the family, major unexpected snowstorm, airplane mechanical problems. Um, you know, it just, it just happens. Um, and so I'm, I'm, that's part of the reason why I listen. I told you I listen to everybody in every city where I go to or I try to because you never know when you're going to need a guy in Oklahoma City out of nowhere. I, you know, it's just one of those things. So, so. I've, you've already given me an hour of your time. That's what I told you it would be beforehand. i got a couple more questions if you have time, but otherwise we can wrap up if you need to get going. I've got another five minutes. Go, go for it. Give me the, the two-minute drill. <laughs> All right. One, a couple of the questions I'd like to ask everyone on the show is, when you get a day off and can just chill out and listen to a game on the radio, who are some of the broadcasters, both some common names that we think of Nash on the national level, and who are some of maybe the under-the-radar people that you like to listen to? Um, I'll, I'll, first of all, days off are few and far between <laughs> in this business and nowadays with technology. That being said... I mean, I listen to it because it's my job, but I listen to it because it's fun. This is what I, was, what I always wanted to do. Um, you know, I hire a lot of the people I love working for, uh, working, you know, listening to rather. I hire because I want them to work for us because I love the way they sound. I love listening to Iron Eagle. I think, you know, his uh, his his humor, his his um, sense of place, his his just he just navigates the broadcast so smoothly and so enjoyably. Um, so it's one of the reasons why I like to hire him. And, and again, I hired him in college, so to speak, hired him, you know, put him on the air. Uh, but it has nothing to do with why I hire him now, but he's just so good. Um, but I, I enjoy, look, I, I mean, I, I've been lucky. I, I worked with Vin Scully back in the day when we did baseball. I worked with Ernie Harwell. Uh, I worked with Jack Buck for many years. I worked with Brent Musburger. I worked with, I've worked with a lot of Jim Nance. I produced for Jim Nance for a couple of years. Um, I, I've worked with a lot of great guys. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know that there's anybody I would say to you that I uh, worked with Dick Enberg. I loved listening to Dick Enberg, loved watching Dick Enberg. I hired Dick Enberg. Um, so I, I don't know that there's anybody I could say to you that at this point, um, that, that is a must listen for me. Obviously this year with Vin being his last year, I think it's ever, it must listen for everybody because we're never going to hear him again. Uh, and so, um, I'm just trying to, I, I, I don't, um, nobody's jumping out at me as a guy that, oh, this is a must listen, because I, I, I just like listening to everybody whenever I can. Um, but there, there are guys out there that are very talented. Um, you know, Dan Miller does the Lions. He's very talented, the Detroit. Wayne Larry does the Packers, very talented. Paul Keels does Ohio State. 
He's very talented. Craig Way in Texas, University of Texas, does basketball, football, baseball, uh, everything. Very talented. Um, you know, and and I'm not sure. Dave Pash does the Arizona Cardinals, does ESPN. I think he's excellent. Also a Syracuse guy, by the way. Um, and so there, but there are a lot of. I don't want to not. You know, I don't want to insult anybody not mentioning them here. There are a lot of guys I listen. to. Mick Huber in Florida. Um, there, bunch of them. Uh, you know, a lot of talented people out there. Um, and and you know, no two. By the way, nobody sounds the same. Any of those guys I mentioned, because this is a very different business. You can be yourself and be good. It's just like a comedian, right? There are a lot of ways to be funny. You don't have to all be the same, and it's the same thing for this. So all different styles all work. You're good, you're good. Where do you see the future of play-by-play broadcasting go? It's changing before our ears with a lot of stuff shifting to live streaming on the Internet. Where do you see this business at in another decade? I would say to you, and I said this five years ago, I think that not ten years, I think five years from now, any person will be able to hear any broadcast from anywhere in the country that they want at that moment. I think if you want to listen to the St. Paul Pioneers or you want to listen to the Bellingham Mariners or you want to listen to the University of Alabama and they're playing, I don't care where you are, you're going to be, there's going to be, I don't know if it's an app on a phone, I don't know if it's, or it could be on a phone, it could be on a computer, it could be, it could be an implant in our ear for all I know. Um, there's going to be a way that you can listen to anything or watch anything that you want. Now, sometimes you may have to pay for it, but we're go- there's not going to be a way, oh, I wish I could see that, I wish I could hear it. You're going to be able to see and hear everything. It's almost going to be completely on demand, or you can record it and play it back later. You know what, oh, I, I, have to, I have a family dinner I have to go to. I really wanted to watch this game or see this game. You can do it on TV, but I think on radio there'll be a way for you to you know, pause it, download it, whatever you want to call it and be able to go back and listen to it. At least that's what I hope. Because, man, how great would it be to go back and listen to something? You meant there was a no-hitter that you didn't know was going to happen. You want to go back and be able to listen to it after the fact. Or, or uh, you know, you're in town and you want to hear a Vin Scully and you couldn't or whatever. I, I think people would do that. Sports is the one thing that, you know, still kind of appointment listening and viewing. All right, I really, really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us, Howard Denneroff, the executive vice president and executive producer for Westwood One Sports. And Howard, if some young broadcaster wanted to get in touch with you and ask you a question, how would they do that? Uh, the best way would be my email, uh, and that's H, and then my last name, D as in David, E-N as in Nancy, E-R-O-F-F as in French Fry, at Westwood One dot com and the one is written out as o n e like the number um and uh, i'll get to it as soon as i can that's always the best way to reach me um and uh, i'll respond at some point but always happy to listen and find the new young great broadcaster in the making all right thanks again for joining us and good luck with the rest of your evening thanks pleasure to be on with you logan anytime This has been the Say the Damn Score podcast. I am your host, Logan Anderson, and we'll remind everybody to subscribe to the podcast by either going to the website, saythedamnscore.com, and clicking the subscribe button and then getting everything sent to your email. Anytime there is an update on the webpage, you can also subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher, and you can follow the podcast on Twitter and on Facebook. That is Radio underscore Logan on Twitter 
and facebook.com slash say the damn score on facebook thanks everyone for tuning in to the say the damn score podcast i'm logan anderson and until next time when you're on the air remember to say the damn score